Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, and 2, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God of love and power, you are revealed to us in your word, in accounts of prophecy and fulfillment that direct our attention to Jesus Christ. So illumine us now as we hear your word proclaimed, that we may open our hearts to him, yearning for his coming in glory and waiting to serve him with joy. Amen. So we are continuing. Uh, this is week two in the book of Hebrews. Uh, last week I mentioned that, um, that this whole book is about persevering, continuing in the faith. It's about trusting in Jesus Christ, who the author tells us in many ways is superior to all sorts of things that uh, we've read about in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. Christ is greater than all. He's greater than angels, than Moses, than Joshua, than the Aaronic priesthood, than the Old Covenant, and he goes on and on and on. Christ is greater than all things, so continue to trust in him and do not drift back into old ways of living. For his audience, mainly that was Jews who had become Christians, do not go back to um, practicing your faith as a Jew, but embrace Christ as the Messiah for all of us, though. It's a message to not drift away from the message that we've heard about Jesus Christ. The first two chapters of this book focus on the argument how Christ is greater than angels. We had some interesting questions last week about angels, and I hope we have more today. But we focused in on the argument that the author makes that Christ is greater than the angels because he is the creator because he has sustained, or he does sustain all things. He is upholding creation and carrying it along toward its proper end, which is himself, that he would be the heir, the inheritor of all things as the king who reigns over God's eternal kingdom. And today, we're looking at how Christ is the revealer. He is the one who brings us truest and most clear and the climactic, revelation of what God is like. So we're talking about revelation today. Uh, God making known to us that which is hidden. Uh, God disclosing himself 
to us. So we're going to be talking about what is true. And of course, this is relevant to the Advent season, the Christmas season, because as you know, uh, Christmas and Advent, there's all this stuff about light, right? Light is a symbol for revelation, for coming to see clearly who God is and what he's doing in the world. So truth, revelation, that's what we're going to talk about. And of course, I think this is a pretty um, disputed and, and difficult conversation for us to have because um, we live in a time when the question, how do we know what's true, is more complicated than, than really ever, it, um, as, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I'm going to give you a little history lesson. This is, this is partly what I studied in college, so I, I'm sort of bent towards these sorts of questions. But um, back hundreds of years ago, back in what we call the Enlightenment period, uh, the birth of modernity took place. You've probably heard that sort of term before, the birth of modernity. What was that all about? Well, modernity was a big movement rejecting the ways that people had come to know what is true and saying we, we're going to venture into a new era of coming to understand what is true in the world. Modernity was a rejection of revelation as a source of knowledge. There had been a lot of wars fought about um, you know, what God had told people to do, allegedly, and people were sick of it. People were looking for something more concrete, a certain way of moving forward in the truth. And so revelation was sort of put on the back burner, and um, modernity began to push for looking for truth in ways that were more accessible publicly and universally and could be tested. And so um, there was this movement towards uh, rationality, towards um, finding truth through reason alone or through investigating the world and testing it and deducing what's true from evidence in the uh, physical world around us. And so religion and faith were relegated to um, maybe there is truth in that, but it's really more of a private matter. It's something that individually, if people have an experience with God, fine. But since no one else can really test that, then we just sort of say you need to keep it to yourself. Religion became a private matter of judgment. Well, this period lasted for several hundred years, um, but eventually uh, people began to call its bluff and say, um, you know, you're not really able to step outside of yourself and be objective and just use reason alone and do science sort of removed from any bias. Um, you know, it seems like you guys are just as biased as anyone else. And it sounds like you're just trying to control the narrative about what's true. And I'm not so sure anyone has access to this grand transcendent objective truth. Instead, what post-modernity said is that we see um, everyone who seems to be able to tell the story and control the narrative gets to decide what is true. And if you listen to what's going on today, this is largely how people are talking about truth. It's all a battle about who's in power, who has the ability to control and name the story that we're all living in, and that will um, determine who are the victims and who are the oppressors. And, uh, and therefore, there's a high level of skepticism of politicians, of pastors, of Westerners, of majority persons, of privileged people, because it's all about telling the story, having the power to control the narrative. And so truth is sort of uh, something that I think is, is harder for us to get our hands on than ever before. We live in this overlap of eras of modernity where a lot of people are still walking around thinking, yeah, objective truth exists and we can get to it through reason and, and science and testing things. And then there's a lot of postmodern people who basically become jaded and say, I don't trust that. That led to world wars and Holocaust and uh, slavery and all sorts of things. And so uh, 
now it's all just about power. And so there's this deep skepticism and cynicism about um, finding the truth. I was really stuck in this battle between modernity and postmodernity when I was in college. I didn't know what to do. I'd grown up in the, in the faith, uh, but then suddenly I had no idea how I could possibly know that Christianity was true or anything really until a friend of mine, her mother, gave me um, this book by a man named Francis Schaeffer. Um, it was really three books, and it paved uh, the way for me to finally uh, gain some confidence that I could trust and um, in truth, I could actually find out what is, is true. And um, a lot of what that book um, showed me is uh, rooted in what we're going to look at today. Uh, and that's that Christianity offers a much, much older approach to finding truth. And um, it really affirms both of the things that modernity and postmodernity modernity are highlighting, but it finds a way forward where we can actually have confidence in truth. Um, there is transcendent truth. There is a way that the world actually works. There, there are uh, true tellings of what is going on, and yet our knowledge is, of course, limited. We are finite. We have a perspective, and we sit in particular positions, and so that does shade how we come to understand the truth. We do have different levels of power. We have different levels of character. We know different people. We have relationships. All those, do thing, those things do affect our knowledge, but that doesn't mean that knowledge is inaccessible to us. We're not stuck in some uh, irrational, absurd life. We're not stuck in this endless cycle of reason that you can't get out of where all you can really know are things like two plus two equals four. It's true sort of by the definition of terms. We're not stuck in power games. Why? Because we were created. It's really that simple. We were created with a capacity to know the one who created us. The creator and the sustainer and the end of creation that we talked about last week, Jesus Christ, he has been spoken to us. God has spoken to us in this creator who has come into the world, and um, God has essentially spoken to us in a way that we can understand. And if we know Christ, that enables us to grow in truth. It is through the revelation of God in Christ that we can know truth. We can know God. We can know his will. We can know um, his ways. And that has a profound impact on um, how we can live our lives. That means we can know who we are. Probably the question more people are struggling with today than ever before. Who am I? What is my identity? We can know that. We can know the meaning of our lives, the purpose, the end of our, of our lives. We can know the direction that we're supposed to go in our everyday life. We have guidance. There's structure. There are rules. And we can grow in wisdom as we come to understand the world in which God has created, which in a time of chaos is incredibly important and helpful. So what I want us to see today is that Jesus Christ, he's greater than angels, that's the argument that's being made, because he is the greatest revelation of God. And because of that, we need to pay attention to him, which is similar to what we saw last week. We need to pay attention to who Jesus is. So I want us today to see God's speech, listening attentively, and a listening life. Those are our three uh, points that we're going to walk through today. So first, let's talk about God's speech in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. And I want us to highlight four things as we walk through these three verses that are incredibly profound and yet uh, very simple. So four things about God's speech. First of all, uh, I want to name the obvious, and that's that God speaks. That is incredibly important. He says, uh, the author says in verse 1, God spoke to 
our fathers. Now, what fathers is he referring to? Well, in, in Scripture, the fathers refer to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to Israel as a whole and to many others who led God's people after that. These are the fathers. And the author says God spoke to them. And friends, this is incredibly important. This is um, telling us that God is not silent. God speaks. God communicates. That is vastly different than what so many other people believe today. Atheists, of course, don't believe there's a God. And so the universe is silent. Of course, deists, yes, there is a creator, but he's distant and removed and unconcerned with us. And so there's no speech from that God. Pantheism, the, the uh, very common Eastern view of, of God or of, um, of absolute reality, is that, yes, God is everywhere and in everything, and yet God is not personal. God is not conscious. It is just the fundamental force or being that exists. God doesn't speak in that understanding. But in Christianity, we believe that God speaks, that God is a conscious mind that communicates himself to his creatures. And so secondly, uh, that's the second point, we see that God speaks to us. Uh, he says in verse 2 that God has not only spoken to his fathers, but God has spoken to us. Now, why does anyone speak to anyone else? It is, of course, to relate to them, to share life with them, to be known by them. That is the sort of God that we worship in the Christian faith, a God who speaks to us in order that we might have a relationship with him. The universe, we believe as Christians, is fundamentally personal, not impersonal. Now, the third thing I want us to highlight here in these few verses is that God has spoken in many different ways and at many different times. There's a diversity to God's speech. Look at verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, it says. Now, what does he mean by long ago? Well, the first uh, sort of recorded uh, revelation that we have, not the, not the first recorded, but the first time God personally addresses humanity outside of the garden when we were first created is Abraham, who lived uh, probably around 2100 or 2000 BC, so almost 4,000 years ago. That's a long time ago. It was a long time ago when this book was written. We know that God continued speaking to um, others all the way up into the last prophets of Israel in around 400 BC. So about 1,600 years of God speaking at various times to our fathers by the prophets, and then 400 years of silence until Christ came. And so the author of Hebrews says, long ago, 400 years is a long time, long ago God spoke to us. And he says he spoke to us in many at many different times, from Abraham all the way up through Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Nathan, Elijah, Elisha. I mean, I can go on and on, all these different prophets. He spoke at many different times and in many ways, angelic messages, visions, dreams, voice from heaven, a burning bush, all sorts of different ways God spoke to his people. Now, you might be saying, how do we know these people weren't crazy, right? I mean, lots of people claim to be hearing from God. How do you know they weren't crazy? Well, um, throughout redemptive history, and the author later in chapter 2 mentions this, God did not just speak, but he also accompanied his speech by signs and wonders and predictions and, most importantly, great acts of salvation. Of course, anyone can claim that they've heard from God. 
But how do we know that? Well, if they can also do a miracle and bring someone to life in a way that is in line with what God has said his world is supposed to be about, that's a pretty good indication this person has heard from God. If God can bring a whole people out of slavery from the greatest empire on earth at the time um, through plagues that no man could ever conjure up himself, that's a pretty good indication that the creator is speaking. And that's what we see all throughout redemptive history. God speaks by his prophets. And at key moments, he accompanies that speaking with signs and wonders. He predicts future events and he saves his people. And the New Testament tells us all of this speaking, all these different ways that God has spoken are all a shadow. They're all a foretaste. They're all a foretelling of something greater that is to come. They pattern God's ultimate and final speech. And that's the fourth thing I want us to see here is that God has spoken climactically in his son, Jesus Christ. He says in verse two, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Here the author speaks of his son, or uh, of God's son, who we later find in chapter two is Jesus Christ. Now, last week I talked about how what is said about the son, Jesus Christ, in this passage tells us that this is no normal son, like maybe we have here today, where you're born at a certain time uh, to your father and your mother. This is a son who is eternal with the father. He is always begotten of God, always generated of the Father. And we know that because what is said of the Son is that he is the creator of all things that are created. If the Son himself is created, then he would fall into that category. That can't work. The author is saying that everything that is a created thing was made through the Son, which means the Son must be eternal, co-eternal with the Father. What else is said about this Son? It says he is the radiance of the glory of God. There's that metaphor of light that we see so often in the book of John and in other places. He is the radiance of the glory of God. What is that, what is that radiance? It's the, the effulgence. It's the, it's the glow, right? This is an, a metaphor. God is a light. He's the source of light. And eternally generated from this source of light is, are the light beams, who is the sun, the, the, the light has, that has never been turned off and that always shines brightly. The sun is the exact radiance of the glory of God and the imprint of his nature, it says. Now, this is speaking about the incarnation, that the son who is eternally with the father was incarnate and came into the world. And how did he come into the world? As a cast, as a mold, as a, as a stamp of the invisible God. What an image. The invisible God who is spirit came into the created world and was stamped in the exact image of the nature of the Father, right? Now, the Bible tells us that mankind, we are in the image and likeness of God, but here it says the Son is the exact image. There is no difference in the Son than with the Father. The Son is what God is like as a person. The incarnate Son is what God is like as a person. And here the author is telling us that the incarnation is an act of God's speech, of God communicating who he is to us. The son that spoke all things into existence also speaks to reveal the father in the power of the Holy Spirit. And God has done this, he says, in the last days. What is that all about? It is the final chapter of God's redemptive plan in the world. 
And that means that Jesus is the climactic revelation of God. There is no greater revelation, there is no greater speech or word or light from the Father than Jesus Christ. Now, this is contrary to so many other religions that uh, claim to be uh, founded on messages from angels like Islam and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, even certain branches of the Christian faith, I would say, that, um, that slide into these sorts of errors. Um, they have failed to see that God has spoken finally, climactically, in this last chapter of God's redemptive work in the Son, Jesus Christ. He is not the shadow. He is the substance of all that God has been revealing from the beginning. And so the basic argument I want us to hear today is that Christ is superior to angels because he is the final messenger of God. He's the climactic revelation of God, and he is unsurpassed in clarity and significance because he himself is God. So what does this mean for us? That's the second thing I want us to see today, is that we are to listen attentively. Uh, look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is an exhortation we looked at last week, but I want to um, press into it further. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now notice here, it, there is an exhortation and also a warning. The exhortation is this, listen carefully, listen attentively, pay closer attention. That's the exhortation. Now uh, we see here the connection between the son in chapter one and then what the author says here is the message that we have heard about this great salvation. Earlier it was said that the son is the climactic revelation. But here in chapter 2, the language shifts to what we have heard. What is that we've heard? This great message of salvation. That's what he's saying we need to listen to. That Jesus Christ made purification for sins, he says back in chapter 1, verse 3. And he tasted death to destroy death and the evil one. He says that in chapter 2, verse 9 and verse 14. So the message he's talking about here is the life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. That is the message that we have heard that he's saying we have to pay close attention to. It's the message about Jesus. He's calling us to pay attention and to hold fast to the good news of Jesus Christ. And then here's the warning. He says, don't drift away from this gospel message. Don't allow your life, whatever you've got going on, to pull you away, to be distracted, to begin following a different, different revelation or to reject revelation altogether. Don't drift away from this good news. Why? Because, he says, in the past when God sent messengers like angels to his people, now this is particularly probably about Israel and Mount Sinai when God delivered the law to them, he says, look, when they were given a message from God and they forsook that message, it proved reliable. They were judged for that. They ignored God's messengers. They went into exile. They uh, experienced just retribution, he says. But more so now, the message of salvation from and in the Son, a greater messenger, the, the climax of God's revelation, if we neglect that, how much worse will it be for us? Don't neglect this message of salvation. Now, this is important that we hear this exhortation and this warning, friends, because as I said last week, we live in a time where we are more distracted than ever before. 
Uh, it is easier for us, I believe now than ever before, to be drifting away from the things that we know are important, the things that we know that are good and right, because we are constantly bombarded with messages from every direction. Right? It's, it's, it's impossible to escape this. We are bombarded by thousands of messages and messengers. Healthy living, godly living, living that leads to ultimate life, has to listen attentively to what is good and right. In the past, because everybody always is listening to something, in the past, people listened to their elders. But of course, elders often fail. That's often led to bad places. And so people said in modernity, we're going to start listening attentively to reason and science. As I said earlier, that led to World War I and World War II and the Holocaust and all sorts of oppression. So people said today, okay, you should listen to yourself. That's who you should listen attentively to. Look inside. Tell your own story. Tell your own truth. Listen to yourself. But we are seeing widespread that this only leads to slavery of all sorts of varieties, to despair, and to worse. Not listening to God's message of salvation will lead you to live in isolation and darkness and shame. To embrace and live lies that lead to wicked ways and evil um, and, and bring guilt upon our lives. It'll lead us to damage ourselves and those around us bringing death. When we don't listen to God's message of salvation, it only leads to bad places. And so I want us thirdly and finally to think about having a listening life. And I want to go back to verses 3 and 4 in a moment to think about a listening life. But I've quoted this before, and I'm going to quote it again. Rowan Williams, who used to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, has this, I think, a beautiful little statement uh, in his reflection on being a disciple. And he says this. He says, the Christian life is a listening life. Christians are people who expect to be spoken to by God. That seems so simple, but it is incredibly profound. Christians are people, friends, who are being restored to what it means to be truly human. That's what we believe about our salvation. God's not turning us into something else. He's restoring us to what humanity is meant to be. And that means if the Christian life is a listening life, all people, if you're going to be truly human, have to be people who listen to God, who are open to his revelation. God's most important word to us is his son, Jesus Christ. Because it's in Jesus that God reveals his character to us. He shows us that he is a God of steadfast love. It is in Jesus that we see the heart of God, that he is a God of compassion and mercy. It is in Jesus that we see the disposition of God, that he is patient toward us, that he is generous, that he is gracious toward us. It's in Jesus that we see the purposes of God, that all things are being directed to the glory of Christ which is for our good as he reigns over all things in the new creation. The good news of Jesus brings light and truth and life to us. All of life should be a listening life to God as we receive and trust in his greatest word about Jesus. So how do we do that? How do we listen to God's son today? Because you might be saying, um, he isn't here. So how do I listen to God? How do I, how do I listen to Christ and the way we do that, the book of Hebrews tells us, is that we listen to Scripture. It is written by the Holy Spirit, we believe. It's uh, illuminated by the Holy Spirit. We listen to the gospel that is contained in Scripture because the Spirit is always drawing us to know the Father through the great revelation of the Son. That's how we pay attention to Jesus. We live in the Spirit 
as we read and study and meditate and sing and pray scripture. Now, let me show you where I'm getting that um, because uh, it's right here in verses three and four of chapter two. We see this connection between Jesus, the message, and scripture all right here. In verse three, this message of salvation, he says in the latter part of verse three, it was declared at first by the Lord. So the message of salvation was declared first by Jesus. He is the one who came into the world announcing his kingdom and his kingship. He foretold of his death for sin and of his resurrection. He explained that he was going to reign over all things in power with all authority. Jesus is God's revelation, and he is the revealer who first declared this message of salvation to us. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. But then keep going in verse 3. It was attested to us by those who heard. This message of salvation was attested to us, he says. Who, who, who is that? It's the apostles. They attested this message that Jesus proclaimed to everyone else. The apostles were the authorized and appointed witnesses of Jesus Christ. They proclaimed the message of the Son. They wrote it down. They wrote down what they saw him do. They wrote down what they heard him say. And we know this because in verse 4, just like in the Old Testament, as I mentioned earlier, while they were attesting to us, while they were writing scripture, God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The, the apostolic message was confirmed by God through miraculous signs, just like in the past. All these moments of important acts of salvation, important moments of revelation, God worked signs and wonders and miracles, and he gave gifts by his Holy Spirit. We see this in the time of Moses in particular, that God brought Israel out of Egypt through amazing signs and, and wonders, right? Remember the plagues? Remember the staff that was turned into a, a snake when he threw it down in front of Pharaoh? Remember the miracles of parting the Red Sea and God giving manna from heaven and water coming from a rock? And remember when all the elders of Israel uh, spoke and prophesied by the power of the Holy Spirit? Both Jesus and the apostles' ministry was confirmed by the miraculous power of God. And friends, uh, I don't want to go down a long rabbit trail here, but this is something we need to think about, um, that the primary function of these miracles and signs was to do just this, to confirm God's revelation to people, to say, this is truly from me. Look at the power being displayed. You can trust the message that I'm giving. So the Christian life, the truly human life, is a life spent listening to God, paying attention to this message of salvation. And we do that by attending to the climactic message of Jesus Christ that is attested to us in the Holy Scriptures. And we find that all the Scriptures are about Jesus. So all of life, we listen to God by receiving and trusting the greatest word, Jesus Christ, that's known to us throughout the Scriptures. Jesus is the revealer, and we have to pay attention to him and to his message. So what do we do with this practically? Let me just make a, a few observations. What do we do with this practically? In all of life, we have to look to the gospel message. And let me help us practice this a little bit. If you're the sort of person who worries that God is uh, maybe a monster, and I know some of you uh, do worry about that. I, I understand that. When you've gone through certain things, it's hard to think that God could be anything other than a monster because why would he put me through this? Why would he allow these horrible things to happen? But we cannot just look at providence 
We cannot just look at our circumstances as a revelation of who God is. We have to look at the climactic revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's word to us. He is proof of what? That God is fundamentally love. You don't have to wonder if there's some dark side of God. That he's, he's really kind of a monster. He's just playing with us. There are tricks. Look at Jesus. Look at what is said to us of God in the work of Christ. This life filled with love. This sacrificial death on the cross to cleanse us of our sin, to raise us up, to overcome death. We do not have to worry that God is a monster. So our life should be filled with returning to this message of Jesus Christ if we worry that God is a monster. Well, what if you're grieving loss? What if you're going through life right now and you're feeling the brokenness of the world in your relationships, in any number of things, and you're grieving? Well, Jesus is God's word that he is near to us. He's near to the brokenhearted. There is hope for a new creation. Jesus has defeated um, evil once and for all on the cross, and he is coming again to make all things new. He is in heaven now preparing a place for us. So yes, mourn, but don't mourn without any hope. What if you're suffering physically right now or emotionally in some way? Turn to Jesus. Look at him. He is God's word to us that he knows our pain. He knows what it's like to hurt deeply. He's with us even in our death, and there will be resurrection and new bodies and new relationships. What about if you've been a victim of, of evil and you feel deeply shame in your life or you feel broken in some way? Jesus is God's word to you that he knows the horrors of what it's like to be violated and humiliated publicly when he went to the cross. And he's going to heal and restore all those who look to him. There is dignity and healing in him. What about those of you who say, well, that sounds all great, but I don't feel like I can hear God in my life right now. Well, look to Jesus. God, he is God's word that God is not silent. He's not abandoned us. He endured the silence of God on the cross so that we could always be assured of his power and love. What about those who are bored and jaded in life? Well, Jesus is God's word to you that your life matters and that God is restoring all things, even you. I could go on and on and on like this, friends, but this is how this practically plays out in our life. Whatever we're going through, we look to the Son, who is the greatest revelation of who God is and what he is doing in the world. Someone last night asked me via text, what would I tell my 18-year-old self in three words? If I had three words to just go back in time and tell myself three words, what would I say? And I, I thought that was a fun question to think about. It might be fun to talk about that over lunch with some of your friends or family. I won't tell you my other two, but my first one was Jesus. And I don't mean that sentimentally. I don't mean that just like, look at me, I'm spiritual, I said Jesus. No, I'm, I, I legitimately, the older I get, look back and think, it would be wonderful if I could have told my younger self, you, you can trust Jesus. I, my, my confidence in him, in God's goodness, in the wisdom that Jesus brings, in the way he helps me navigate life, and what God is ultimate. I, I have utter confidence, growing confidence in Jesus, and I would love to tell my 18-year-old self that. The second thing I want to say before we wrap up is um, a question that always comes up when we talk about the revelation of God, and that's, how do I know God's will for my life? And one of the things we're tempted to, that this passage um, sort of, I think, speaks to, is this need to have God speak directly to us and give us an exact answer to all the questions we have about the life that we're facing right now, right? This is what we want. And this is one reason why I think we're drawn to and warned about angelic messages, because 
there are other spiritual beings out there. And, and, and it would be great if I wanted to know what I should do tomorrow if God just said, do this, you know, and it would be like, oh, okay, that clears it up for me, right? And we want that sort of connection with God sometimes. We want God to speak in this incredibly personal, not in this scripture sort of way that's kind of for everybody, but I want exactly knowledge of what I'm supposed to be doing in my life. And I get the allure of that, but we have to remember that God has already given us the greatest revelation, everything we need in Jesus, who is spoken about in scripture. And it's in scripture that God gives us the goal of all things, Christ as heir. He's given us general guidelines and the character that we're supposed to develop in the person of Jesus and the way he lived his life, this example to us. Um, He's given us uh, power to live by God's spirit um, along with the instruction of the word. Like we, We have everything we need. We don't need to go searching for personal, direct answers to particular questions. We need to continue going back to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, let me try to tell you what I mean by this. So um, if you have kids or you've been around kids, sometimes you'll give them instructions about something you want them to do, and you've shown them how to do it. You've talked to them about the sort of person they're supposed to be, what the goal is. You've given them all the stuff they need to do what you've called them to do, some project maybe. And if, if you're like me, you've encountered kids who, who then go on to ask a thousand questions about it. And they want uh, often every little detail along the way. And um, part of that might be that they, they're worried that if they do it wrong, they won't be loved. And that's something we never have to worry about with God. Uh, or maybe they're worried about not being in full control. That again, we don't have to worry about that because with God, everything is in his hands. But part of it is that um, we resist the struggle of figuring some of this out on our own. And I think we treat God that way too. He has given us everything we need for our lives in Christ, in scripture, and yet we want exact answers to whether or not I should go to this and that place at this time or date that person or take this job. And it's of course good to pray about those things and ask God to give us wisdom. But the thing is, God is interested in us growing. And so he doesn't give us every single answer to every little thing we face. In particular, he gives us his son. And as you come to know the son and what God is doing in the world through the son, you begin to struggle with the circumstances of life. Sometimes you make bad decisions, but you grow in wisdom, which is what God wants to do in your life. So you don't have to worry if, if you screw it up, if God's not going to love you, or if, you know, don't worry about who's in control. God's in control. It's okay to struggle. Look to the Son. Don't expect him to give you particular answers to every little detail of life that you want to know about. Zooming back out, pay attention to what God has said to us in Jesus. He's the greatest revealer of all that God is doing, greater than angelic messages. So continue to pay attention to him. Listen to what God has said to us in Christ. In him, we know that God has given us life over death. That's what this meal represents. Christ gave his body. He defeated death that we might live. He shed his blood to purify us of our sin. Cling to that message. Let's pray together.